You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Chances are you've heard the story of Beowulf. It's a great story about a hero who comes to save a king whose hall is being savaged by a terrible monster called Grendel. Beowulf defeats Grendel only to discover his mother, Grendel's mother that is, is an even worse monster. But then Beowulf defeats her too. And then years later, he has to battle a terrible dragon. And although he wins, he's mortally wounded and dies. Oh dear, I forgot to say spoiler alert. Well, anyway, Beowulf's a great story. An epic tale held in historical reverence as one of the earliest Anglo-Saxon works of literature. Oh, and it's also important because some young Earth creationists believe that it tells a true story of men fighting dinosaurs in Europe. <laughs> Stick around. It gets verse. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Dr. Karen Stolzno and Ben Radford, we talk about monsters, folklore, and the facts behind these stories. I've got a couple announcements to make before we get into our interview. First, this weekend is SciCon, the second annual Skeptics Conference held by the Committee for Skeptical Inquirer. CSI, formerly PSYCOP, is the organization that was founded many years ago by some very famous skeptical thinkers, including James Randi, Ray Hyman, and Paul Kurtz. Sadly, Paul Kurtz passed away just a few days before this recording, but his work will live long into the future thanks to his many writings and the many people who he influenced who continued to publicly respond to clear nonsense and to seriously inquire into mysteries with rational thought and skeptical methodology. I assume that the PsyCon event will not be a place to mourn his passing, but to celebrate his work. And I and Ben Radford will be there this weekend in Nashville if you want to come say hello. The second announcement is a bit of monster news about me. I have a new short story appearing in the next issue of Weird Tales magazine. It's a humorous story in the vein of H.P. Lovecraft, and I'm delighted that my first pro-fiction tale is in the same venerable magazine that gave Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard their starts. I hope you'll look for it at your local magazine outlet or online. It's issue number 360, and you can also get it at weirdtellsmagazine.com. Thanks. Monster Dog. 
If you're a regular listener to this show, you know we value skepticism in scientific thinking. I personally am very interested in many aspects of the human condition, including biology, neurology, psychology, sociology, and others. And while I won't cite any particular statistics, it's safe to say that a very large and vocal percentage of our country does not believe in evolution. In some ways, this doesn't bother me. I know enough about the mechanisms behind the brain's belief system to know that people who believe this sort of thing are unlikely to be persuaded to another way of thinking except through their own journey of discovery and that nothing I can say here is going to change their beliefs. If you want to believe the Earth is 6,000 years old, that's fine. Just like as an IT professional, I know that a large percentage of the people I help with computer problems think that computers are magic. They don't understand how they work and they're not interested in learning more about them. They know just enough to get by and are satisfied. Of course, computers are magic, and the world isn't 6,000 years old. And not only is evolution a fact, but it's been demonstrated again and again that it happens, that natural selection is the main mechanism driving it, that predictions based on evolutionary theory are backed up by molecular and geological findings, which are truly astonishing. And I get it. I'm okay if you don't believe that. But the problem I have is when people of faith try to put their creation myths into the science classroom. That's a serious problem. If you care about that issue, I would urge you to support the National Center for Science Education, the NCSE, which works to keep that issue under control. I'm also bothered when people stretch the truth or lie to create works which less inquisitive people then use to prop up their faith. I've always felt that if you have to make up lies to support your beliefs, there's probably something wrong with your beliefs. You need an example? How about serious claims that the monsters in the old English poem Beowulf were real and were in fact dinosaurs? Oh, if that sounds like a joke, it isn't. In this episode, we're going to interview skeptical humanities researcher Eve Siebert about her work on just such a claim. Monster Talk. Hey, today we're talking to Eve Siebert, formerly of the Atlanta Skeptics. You're, I assume you're an English major. Could you just tell us what your background is? <laughs> yeah. Way, way, to, way to kill time there. Yeah. Good job. yeah. <laughs> on the oh. other hand, I have read your article. So oh, there. that's good. Yeah, so. <laughs> well, I have a, a PhD in English literature with a concentration on Old English and Middle English and Old Norse. Well, that probably comes in great at parties too, right? We're here to we're going to talk to you about a paper that you've written. Where is this going to be published? Skeptical Inquirer. Excellent. All right. Do you, ben, do you know when that'll hit press? Given the lag time and the amount of a backlog we have, uh, I couldn't tell you when it'll be slated. I'm guessing it'll probably be mid next year. Okay. So uh, this will give some people something to uh, savor uh, as they wait by their mailbox. <laughs> yeah. Sadly. <laughs> I liked it, though. It was a good article. So for, for those of our listeners, so let's sort of set the context. Mm-hmm. Uh, for for those people who may not have read or watched or ever heard of Beowulf, mm-hmm. um, can you sort of give us a summary of Beowulf? Uh, well, Beowulf is an old English poem, though it's set entirely in Scandinavia. Uh, it's about a hero who faces several monsters uh, and kills them. Uh, one is called Grendel. Then there's Grendel's mother. And finally, a dragon who uh, Beowulf actually ends up dying in the fight with the dragon. The dragon also dies. But I think people should have had time to read this, right? When was it written? Uh, well, that's a highly controversial, but probably between the mid-8th century and around the beginning of the 11th century. So people should have had time to look at this by now. Okay, so yeah. okay, we'll just leave. <laughs> it's been on Kindle for, for at least a couple weeks. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think it's something we're all forced to read in school. I can't remember too much of it, but... Back in mm. high school, we were forced to read it. I yes. seem to remember a whole a whole lot of consonants. Is that uh, is that right? Yeah, consonants and vowels. 
Oh, so, <laughs> both. Excellent. Well, I, most of the translation it, it had extra consonants. So what's the historical significance of this tale? It's the earliest Germanic epic, part of the earliest Germanic literature that survived. As far as being actually historical, it's not. There's a historical background to it, but you know, it's sort of semi-history, legendary. It's also appeared in quite a few adaptations. Uh, again, I remember reading it when I was, I don't know, probably in, in middle school, then again in high school, and then I think a couple of years back there was a movie version with Angelina Jolie, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, there, and how, there have how, been several. How historically movies. accurate was that? Oh, well, how accurate as to the poem? Not, not terribly. Rendell's mother, not a hottie uh-huh. uh, in the poem. Uh, but she always tends to be uh, rather attractive in film versions. There's one starring uh, Christopher Lambert. That's who it is. So there's Island. a version. Yeah. That's oh, my it. gosh. I have that on DVD and haven't watched it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not good. Oh, hey, now. <laughs> I get now. That's more of a real spoiler. <laughs> mm. Well, so, Okay. Your article, though, is not just about Beowulf. It's it actually is about. Um, I'll, I'll let you describe it more, but it, it's really about how uh, young Earth creationists or creationists are trying to use Beowulf to uh, corroborate the scriptural mm-hmm. uh, stories about the creation of the Earth. Is that right? Yes. Um, well, mostly because, well, it has a dragon. And anything with uh, dragons is fair game for young Earth creationists because the argument is that stories of dragons are really about dinosaurs. And they indicate, therefore, that humans and dinosaurs coexisted, therefore, young Earth. I'm not exactly sure how that works. It seems to me there might be a few steps missing, logically. Mm-hmm. But... But that's the argument. It's like step three is profit, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the dragon makes Beowulf uh, quite popular for young Earth creationists. Um, and a few have gone even beyond that with the other monsters also being dinosaurs. Well, right. And so, sometimes dragons. Yeah. So, so what are they mapping these creatures? Is, it, is that fairly – I mean that's a fair way to say that they're, they're basically mapping these fictional or poetic creatures or legendary mm-hmm. creatures to real historical creatures that don't really match the timeline according to science. Right. Exactly. And they also try to make Beowulf out to be a true story because they read everything almost as literally as they read the Bible. So Beowulf – true story. So who exactly is spreading these theories? Well, the, the main, the most elaborate version is, is, uh, by a guy named Bill Cooper who wrote a book called after the flood, the early post flood history of Europe traced back to Noah. And he says that, you know, it's a true story. Beowulf really existed. He was born in 495 AD around tea time. And, he really fought dra- uh, dinosaurs. Dinosaurs, sort of like like Land of the Lost, right? And I, as as I recall, there there's one particular uh, case. If I'm remembering it correctly, the, uh, the the author was was trying not to actually you know, specifically identify it as a T Rex, but it was clear mm-hmm. from the context that that's exactly what he's talking about. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about that story? 
Yeah, well, this is the the battle with Grendel, who's the best known of the monsters in Beowulf, the one who actually has a name. And he argues, well, definitely that it's a dinosaur. And through mistranslating the poem and misrepresenting it, he makes it appear that Grendel is actually a young Tyrannosaurus Rex with small arms because Gren- or Beowulf is actually able to tear off one of Grendel's arms. Therefore, it must be small and weak. Of course, the poem says nothing of the sort. What, well, what, can you give us a, I don't know if you have it right in front of you, but can you give us a little bit of a comparison between you know, what, the, what the original says, uh, again, either paraphrased or quoted, mm-hmm. and what they're saying? Well, the original says, uh, it, well, it's clear that Grendel and his mother are basically human-shaped. Um, they, they're referred to as uh, in the shape of a man and in the shape of a woman, except that Grendel is larger than any other man. Cooper quotes a version, a translation that just leaves out the word other saying, so it says that Grendel is larger than any man. So by leaving out the single word other, which is there in the original, he transforms basically human like creatures, large human like creatures into just bipeds. And then he, it's through the fact that Beowulf tears off Grendel's arm that he makes the assumption that, oh, therefore his arm must have been small and weak. But in fact, what happens in the battle is both combatants are extremely strong. Grendel is determined to get away from Beowulf. Beowulf is determined not to let Grendel get away. And in the struggle, Grendel's arm uh, is torn off. So it's actually the combined strength of Beowulf and Grendel that leads to the injury. It's not because he has wee little T-Rex arms. It seemed like, uh, as I I read your article and, and looked at the materials that they were presenting... Versus the original uh, poet, uh, the original poetry, the original intent. Mm-hmm. It seemed like there was a lot of I don't is it intellectual dishonesty? I, I mean, I'm not sure how to describe this. Where you know things like leaving out a word or miss you know just selectively interpreting one particular phrase. Quote, it's basically like quote mining or something. You know, yeah. Just, I'm not really sure what that's called, except it's not right. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of cherry picking but cherry picking maybe that's what it's, it is it's hard to say whether it, it it's really dishonest or not it seems dishonest but it, it's hard to say to what extent you know he's deluding himself because it's impressive the degree some people can delude themselves although the, there is a it does seem he must realize what he's doing in some cases that that that's just not accurate or certainly the fact that he gives the impression that he's familiar with old English. He doesn't actually say it, but he mm-hmm. gives that impression by talking about the old English, even quoting, quoting the old, old English, even translating a little bit of it himself, which gives the impression that he actually knows the language. 
but he doesn't actually know the language. It's clear he doesn't actually know the language. If you actually know the language, it's clear he doesn't actually know the language. And it seems to me that's definitely dishonest, uh, giving the impression that he has more expertise than he does. Hmm. But otherwise, it's hard to tell the degree of dishonesty versus the degree of just self-delusion. So what is his actual background? Well, let's see. According to the back of the book, he has a bachelor's degree from Kingston University in uh, England. Since then, he seems to have, uh, I just realized recently, he seems to have accumulated a couple of doctorate degrees, but I haven't been able to figure out where they come from or what they're in. But he does have, he has a BA in religion, philosophy, and political theory and English literature from Kingston University. But the English module would not have covered Old English. Mm -hmm. So he would not have studied it. Do you think he had anyone else do those translations for him? or? Well, the one translation he says is his own. And, you know, it's, it's not too far off. The gist is correct, but it's clear he doesn't know the grammar. Um, elsewhere, he, he uh, quotes uh, a published translation, although he doesn't always cite it properly. But he, he is referring to a, a published translation which is unfortunately a verse translation, uh, which takes a lot of poetic license, you know, which is fine, but not if you're talking very specifically about what words mean. Um, and based on that, he gets a lot of things wrong. Yeah. Can, actually, I was going to ask, can you, can you sort of expand on that in terms of the differences between prose and verse translations uh, in other languages where, you know, we were, there may be two actual translations, but one of them is, is, has been, you know, modified and changed uh, for very specific literary purposes. Mm-hmm. Well, a, a prose translation is likely to be fairly literal. I mean, it's still not going to be absolutely literal or it wouldn't make sense. You know, it's, they have to change word order uh, because the language has changed to a degree that you can't have the original word order or it wouldn't make sense. But mm-hmm. fairly literal. A verse translation has to fit its own rules of meter and so on, whatever meter or alliteration the translator is using. So a poet will make changes to the original and get the, the feeling of the original, the basic story of the original, and then we'll try to perhaps give a sense of what the language sounds like uh, as much as you can. But in doing so, you know, is changing what the poem actually says a little bit more than a prose translation would. So changing parts of speech, uh, changing words around, uh, in a way that a, a prose translator wouldn't, which again is fine unless you're saying that this particular word, if you win it, refers to, for instance, refers to uh, sea monsters when actually if you look at the original, it doesn't refer to the sea monsters at all. The ch- in the original Beowulf, 
our, like in the version that we have. So I, I guess for, you know, this, correct me if I'm wrong, because it's been a while since I've studied Beowulf. I was an English major too, but, you know, <laughs> my recollection was these were originally uh, spoken word tales and that this is something that was written down later by poets who were trying to preserve. I mean, I'm not sure how, you know, Maybe I'm not – I don't know what their intent was, but they wrote down a poem that had been around for a while. Possibly. We we don't really know uh, when it was written, as I said. Yeah. He wants to make it much older than it could possibly be, um, like written immediately after the events it describes, which if that's the case, it was it's in the wrong language. Right. But um, but we don't know exactly when it was written. As I said, there is a, a range so, and we don't really know if it was orally composed or if it was a literary composition. It comes from oral tradition. So in Old English, there are a few poems that we know are literary compositions, but they still have certain aspects of oral tradition in them. So it's very hard to say if this specific poem was orally composed or is a literary composition. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Roughly, there, there's kinning inside the poem, and kinning is I, I, it's a it's a special kind of metaphor that's used in poetry, I guess. But in their in their poetry, they they call um, the ocean they call it whale road instead right. of calling it the sea, right? which I think mm-hmm. is really you know that kind of metaphor I could I really enjoy because it mm-hmm. it adds a richness to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think maybe that's why I always thought that 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 it must have been based on oral tradition because it used oral tools, I guess you know communicative tools I, that's not really a question my question was <laughs> in the written version uh mm-hmm. of the poem they do refer to grindel as uh, being uh related to the race of cain and um uh, is that actually part of i mean i was wondering if that was part of the original story if that was maybe added in um by some scholar to an existing tale but if if there's no earlier version of the story mm-hmm. than this written version you know, we don't have any other copies of it then i guess uh, it doesn't have to be a pious edition. It could just be part of the original written tale. Yeah. He, um, actually, Grendel is associated with the race of Cain. It's not necessarily, it's not entirely clear. It's a little ambiguous whether he's descended from the race of Cain. Um, this is actually a point Cooper makes that arguing that it it was written before the conversion because it only mentions the flood and Cain and Abel and nothing in the Bible post flood. So he wants it to be very early before the English converted. 
to Christianity and that it's an independent uh, version of the flood and therefore corroborates the Bible. That, of course, is not true for a number of reasons. However, most scholars agree that the Christian elements in Beowulf and in a lot of Old English poems aren't just sort of superficial. That there's an argument of how how Christian it is, but that you know it, it's as integral to the poem as the pagan elements. And there are both Christian and pagan elements. It's you know once they converted, it's not as if all of a sudden uh, their Germanic ho- hero- heroism just sort of disappeared in the blink of an eye. It's sort of like a you know you got Germanic hero- heroism in my Christianity. You got Christianity, Christianity, my German heroism, and uh, <laughs> so it's a, a happy mixture or unhappy mixture. So, but yeah, it it, it is not necessarily a a monkish interpolation. The the references to Cain and the flood. So, have creationists attempted to reinterpret other works of fiction that you know of? Jeffrey of Monmouth's. Uh, works on the history of Britain and the prophecies of Merlin. Um, I know uh, Cooper thinks those are real too. A bunch of Norse uh, works that deal with genealogies. So, so at least to a certain extent, yes, that he, he and others do think uh, other works of fiction are real. Well, it struck me, you know, just sort of when I was reading that and, and hearing you discussing it, that there's only one several examples where creationists try to use, uh, you know, clearly fictional uh, stories or even monsters to mm-hmm. to support biblical stuff. Uh, you know, as I recall, the Cardiff giant part of that story was that, uh, you know, the guy was trying to trying to show that uh, a local biblical literalist was was wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a, a interesting strain within Bigfootery. Uh, mm-hmm. You know where people are are trying to sort of you know recast Bigfoot as as you know could this be <laughs> could this be you know the ancient uh, you know the, the race of giants mentioned in the Bible things like that and even mm-hmm. uh, even Chupacabra um, as I talk about in, in my book you know even the 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 uh, one of the Chupacabras uh, one found in Blanco Texas was purchased by a creationist museum right uh, and put on display as mm-hmm. as and and you know it was. It's clearly chupacabras are not mentioned in the Bible, as far as I know. Right. Um, but but in in his mind, the idea was that it, that if science could be proven wrong about you know these creatures, then what else could they be wrong about? How about evolution? It's right. this really really weird tortured logic. Um, well, there, uh, how, there, how? Go ahead. There's a a book by co-written by Kent Hovind and. William J. Gibson, mm-hmm. that's creationist cryptozoology called, I believe, Claws, Jaws, and Dinosaurs. <laughs> um, and it's the weirdest thing. They do. They talk about Beowulf as well, which they get from Cooper, though they don't cite him. And they got Bigfoot, Bigfoot meeting Leif Erikson. Right. And, and the weirdest things, because some of it is just like, I, I can't imagine, even if this were true, what it actually has to do with creationism, like dodos. Because, well, we know dodos were real, and we know dodos existed not terribly long ago. So, 
even if you find one, how does that prove creationism? Right. Uh, and apparently they just sort of go to, well, the, the diverse wonders of God's creation. Like, well, in, in his article, how, how does he phrase that? I mean, what, what does he just leave it ambiguous or does he just sort of, what does he say about the connection between Beowulf and, uh, and, and the Bible? Cooper, he, um, as I said, he says it's independent of the Bible because it was written before the English were converted. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the references to Cain and Abel and the flood corroborate the Bible. Um, and most of his, the whole thing about Beowulf and the monsters is actually a tangent. The, the book primarily is looking at the table of nations in Genesis and comparing that to a bunch of genealogies, early European genealogies in Old Welsh, Old Irish, Old Norse, and Old English. And many of these ge genealogies mention a son of Noah uh, somewhere. And again, he says that these were written or originally composed before these countries converted to Christianity, and therefore they corroborate the Bible, that they're independent uh, sources for the flood. But, you know, they're not. They're all, all the references to Noah are pretty late. Um, that the, like the last thing that get, gets added to these genealogies. And most of them, we know where they came from. Mostly it's during the reign of Alfred the Great. And then the other uh, place, other, like the Norse borrowed from the English genealogies. Um, so they're not independent of each other, much less independent of the Bible. So he, as I said, he thinks they're independent corroboration of the Bible. But in order for that to be true, it would need to be a document historically as old as the Bible, right? I mean, it, well, no, it would just have to be before from before the English converted to Christianity or before. Oh, the, I see. I see. Yeah. So, well, mm, yeah. It's tricky, isn't it? What? <laughs> yeah. But I noticed in in the story in in Beowulf, they there are real people's names in real places. So this is probably a true story, then, right? Uh, you would think, but no. And actually, only one of the characters in Beowulf is, is really regarded as having been a historic person, definitely, and that's Beowulf's king Heloc, because he's mentioned by Gregory of Tours some somewhere, but. No one knows anything about him except that he was killed in battle, really. Um, and that's it. The other characters are mentioned elsewhere, but it's all in sort of semi-historical, legendary stuff. So they might have existed. They might not have. It's sort of like King Arthur. Maybe he did. What? what? I, I, look, <laughs> don't undermine my uh, my project to fund a search for the Holy Grail. On oh, okay. <laughs> What is that? Uh, Kickstarter. <laughs> there you go. So historically, was it believed to be a true story? Well, it's hard to tell because we don't, well, any evidence that anyone read Beowulf until much, 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 much later. But I would suspect to some extent, certainly the um, the background of, of the, the various wars and feuds and dynastic marriages, those would have been considered to be true 
Um, and people seem to have believed in monsters of various sorts. So quite possibly uh, people would have thought it was true to some degree. But on the other hand, it's a conscious poetic work. So, well, yeah, but people, some people think Robert E. Howard's Conan stories are true. So, you know, well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> well, and this, so the, the, the piece that you read, that was essentially, it wasn't really a scholarly piece. It was a sort of a quasi academic. I mean, he certainly put on pretentious of, of being scholarly, but it's, it's, it's audience. I imagine was probably adult creationists. Uh, yeah. Is that, is that right? Yeah. And it, well, it sort of has a veneer of scholarliness that, you know, the stuff he's talking about is so obscure um, mm-hmm. that it seems scholarly. He has 14 appendices. That seems scholarly. He's talking <laughs> about works in Latin and Old Irish and Old Welsh and Old Norse and Old English. Latin is the most accessible one, and it's the dead language. Um, on the other hand, he. He doesn't have very good bibliography. His his source citations are not are, are difficult to follow. Things that you would actually expect to find in a scholarly work. But, so, well, no, go ahead. I, I so didn't say. Go ahead. It seems scholarly, but it isn't. And plus, there's also a bunch of anti-intellectualism when, you know, he's talking about real scholars. Uh, he dismisses what they have to say because. Uh, usually by calling them modernist. Are, are there sections of it that are in all caps? Because we know that that's a sign <laughs> of, of accuracy. Uh, no. There are uh, occasional uh, uses of bold, but no, not all caps. <laughs> well, how's the um, – a bit? I guess my, the, the question I was leading up to was that mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, 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 his writing wasn't necessarily geared towards children, uh, mm-hmm. but oftentimes, as we've all seen with creationist materials, uh, they're aiming for the younger kids who are perhaps not as, um, <laughs> as, as skeptical or as wise. Right. Uh, how has this literalistic interpretation uh, been presented to kids? Do you know? Well, yeah, there have been uh, works aimed at homeschooling children, homeschool children have, that have been inspired by this or other, you know, uh, the dragon is a dinosaur th- sort of thing. So there have been some homeschooling materials, particularly there's a whole series of radio adventures called Jonathan Park. And there's one, The Hunt for Beowulf. Uh, where the Beowulf manuscript has been uh, stolen and the creation response team uh, is going to find it because, and they have to find it because it has evidence that dinosaurs and humans coexisted, therefore young earth. Um, Of course, the poem still exists, whether the manuscript exists or not. So, I don't, not exactly sure why they're so keen on finding the manuscript. More keen than the, the British Library apparently was. Mm. Um, but uh, so it's being presented. It's being filtered down into works aimed at children, particularly homeschooled children. It seemed to me that with the monsters he's picked, like Map, Grindel and Grindel's mom, and then the dragon, it seems like he's picking really popular creatures from real history, like the T-Rex and Pterodons. 
Mm-hmm. Is that? Do you think he picked them because he that's what he knew they were the most popular, or like because it seems like it's a pretty far stretch that that's what was really being talked about? I mean, I, I've seen other people interpret uh, the Grindel as a possible Bigfoot, and, and yeah. the, if you think, which is at it, least a bit more plausible. It, it, well, exactly. So you flip a coin. Which is it? Is it, if it's not really the, just what they're describing, it's got to be some real creature. Is it a T-Rex or is it a Bigfoot? I wouldn't think that would ever be a, you know, I can't really tell based on the words which it is. I mean, you know what I mean? Those things don't really look much alike. Right. Uh, so <laughs> it seems odd. Um, why do you think I he think- shot for T-Rex? Why, why, why pterodons? I'm going to cut most of my question out later. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I think it, partly it's because he's very ignorant about dinosaurs as well, because as I understand it, and he, it, that, T-Rexes have only been have not been found in uh, Europe, so they wouldn't fit. Uh, and Ken Hovind, in his version, actually says Megalosaurus, which are T-Rex-like, but they found Megalosaur bones in England, I think. Um, and same with the, the Pteranodons, that they uh, are purely North American, so they don't really fit. And I don't know if it's because... They're popular, or he's just really convinced himself of this because he, with the the pteranodon, he's very specific that that's what the poem means, not any other sort of flying uh, dinosaur, dinosaur-like creature. That because the the poet poet refers to the dragon as a a far flyer, that that means it's a pteranodon because they could. Far fly, or fly farther than, say, pterodactyls. Of course, it's clearly just a poetic word, and it's there to alliterate. But, again, he, he takes things very literally in the poem and, and thinks these are zoological terms. He calls them zoological terms when they're clearly poetic terms. And will you make a good point in your article that... Um if this were real, if, if the uh, if these people had been running into T-Rexes and Pteranodons, we'd probably find bones of those creatures in their burial sites. Yeah, especially, yeah, the, the dragon um, loves treasure. He's been sitting on treasure for 300 years and been perfectly content until someone stole a cup from him. And then he goes into a rage. And that's really typical of... Germanic dragons that they love treasure. Uh, Fafnir in Sigurd or Siegfried cycle loves treasure, turns himself into a dragon to protect his treasure. Um, There's a poem called Maxims, Old English Maxims, where it says that the, the dragon shall sit on treasure, which is basically a truism. That's what dragons do. They sit on treasure. So you'd think when people start unearthing uh, Anglo-Saxon treasures or Old Norse uh, burial ships that they would find dinosaur bones. But strangely enough, there have not been many dinosaur bone findings around uh, Germanic treasures. That is curious. Yeah, I know. Odd. I have a quick question, and this is actually for for anyone else, uh, either anyone else. Does anybody know is is Hoven still in in prison? I know that he yep. was sentenced to. Yeah, I was just 
Is he still doing time? Good for him. Good for him. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's something about you got to pay your taxes. Yeah. So uh, if you don't render under Caesar, that's which is Caesar. Caesar will render to you a, a, a harsh sentence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stupidity is not illegal, but evading taxes is. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, if we have a question that we always like to ask of our guests, so could mm-hmm. you answer this question? What's your favorite monster? Oh, there's so many. Um, I'm going to say dragon, just, you know, for Beowulf. Good choice. <laughs> you mean dinosaurs. Yeah, I mean dinosaurs. <laughs> right. That's be, right. Be clear about that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my Big, gosh. fire-breathing dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, how do they explain that? Science. Yeah. I, I assume it's the flicking giant red tongue, you know. I, I don't know. He doesn't, he calls it, he mentions that the dragon's called a fire dragon, but doesn't explain how that fits with the dinosaur. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, it seems like a lot of this is a uh, uh, rather tortured logic, so. <laughs> yeah. But I thought your article was excellent, and um, I look forward to seeing it printed up with pictures and whatnot, as they do in the Skeptical Inquirer. Oh, do you think you might do a a follow-up of this article for an academic journal, maybe, to answer all of his, or to to counter all of his claims? Um, I have actually written a much longer version. Um, I'm planning on putting it in a book I'm working on with... uh, Robert Blaskowitz uh, about skepticism and the humanities. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. You just heard an interview with Eve Siebert about her upcoming article for Skeptical Inquirer on the surprising claim by creationists that the story of Beowulf was real and describes humans and dinosaurs living together. Hopefully all of our listeners will be able to get their jaws to undrop soon after that sinks in. Monster Talk is brought to you by Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed on this show, while totally awesome, do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Thanks again to everyone who's been contributing to Monster Talk's transcript project. We're getting more and more episodes transcribed and uploaded every month. Here's an interesting statistic. It seems very likely that we'll cross the 1 million downloads mark very soon after this episode goes live. Watch my Twitter feed at Dr. Atlantis and I'll post it when I see it. You can find links to mine and Karen and Ben's social media, plus our show notes at monstertalk.org and skeptic.com. Monster Talk's theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks for listening. of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. Here's an interesting... Here's an interesting... Here's an interesting statistic... As a longtime foreign correspondent, 
I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.